Hello, friends. This episode of the Pod and Order podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Animal Stone. Animal Stone connects people to animals through solid sterling silver and solid 14 karat gold animal charms. Browse the full collection at animalstone.com to find your favorite animal and use code PAUSE10 for 10% off your order. Proceeds from the sale of 10 animals goes back to wildlife conservation. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, everyone, welcome to episode 62 of the Pod and Order podcast. I'm Camille Labchuk, joined by my co-host, Jessica Scott-Reed. Hey, Jess. Hey, Camille, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I am still in Prince Edward Island, which has been great, although it's uh, starting to cool down, which I guess makes sense because we're into September. It's going down to like 12 degrees at night. Yeah, Ooh. here in Manitoba, too, super chilly. It's like immediate fall. It's like, honestly, September 1st hit and boom, it's minus, it's, well, not minus, but like down to eight at night, which to me already feels like a minus. <laughs> I mean, that is totally getting close to frost territory. So, uh, yeah, uh, I guess the summer couldn't last forever. But um, yeah, so still in PEI, uh, people keep saying, hope you're having an awesome vacation, but I'm actually not on vacation. I'm still working the whole time. I just happen to only Instagram the fun beach stuff. Yes, that's all not... we see. That's all we see, Camille, is you on the beach, you eating at vegan restaurants, you having all the fun. We want to see you in your sweats at the, your laptop doing work so that we know. Well, well, that is how I spend 80% of my time is like sitting with my computer, typing things and reading things. So I guess maybe I should share more of that content. Yes, that's what we want to see. We want to see it. I got out the other night and did an event. I spoke at an event in Charlottetown, PEI, indoors, which was just like so strange. Very strange. Um, First time I've spoken anywhere indoors in person that's not like an online talk or an outdoor rally since uh, COVID hit so it was like whoo it was weird did it feel weird to be close to people at all like I feel like I'd have some kind of social anxiety a little bit at this point yeah you know I didn't so much and maybe that's just because I've been in PEI for so long and COVID's like there is no COVID here so it's not really feeling like um the same situation as Ontario was yeah you know Winnipeg felt that way for a while too we had a great little run there where Winnipeg was sort of the middle of the country and we were all safe and secure and feeling like all normal and really good about ourselves and now it's not so good. Uh, yeah, I know. I've been watching your numbers climb, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, Yes. Anyway, the event was cool. I spoke uh, at uh, the Haviland Club alongside Dr. Elizabeth Scholes, who's been involved with animal justice and um, one of the most knowledgeable animal rights people in PEI, probably the most knowledgeable person. And we talked about 
I guess it kind of boiled down to the influence of the agriculture industry and how it's been so difficult to get any good laws on the books or get enforcement of the laws that do exist just because that industry is so powerful. So, you know, I thought it was cool. Uh, the leader of the opposition was there, the Green Party leader, Peter Bevan Baker. So that nice. was kind of cool. Nice. And the premier's wife. So, you know, who knows what might come of it? I hope that some important people are at least thinking about the issues. Well, that's good. Sounds like you have been using your time wisely over in PEI. Oh, yes. It's not all beach. Not all beach and fun. Not all beach <laughs> and how about you? I, I see that you've had some fun over the last few days. Yeah. Speaking of uh, trying to have some fun during COVID, I, I had to figure out how to have my daughter's fourth birthday COVID friendly and also, of course, vegan friendly and a bit eco friendly, not too many, no balloons or anything like that. So we I added at uh, the Wildlife Haven Animal Rehab Center in Manitoba so we could have some ethical animal experiences. The kids got to meet a couple owls and a turtle and build some bird's nests all outside, all nice and safe. I used, you know, bamboo plates and cutlery and had a nice vegan cake. So I was really able to figure out how to how to put it all together. And of course, we had to do four separate parties so that we could keep the groups small enough. So it was a crazy weekend, but it all worked out. Oh, well, what's the maximum group size right there or right now? You know what? I don't even know, but I definitely didn't want to flirt with any kind of big numbers. And even just like you feel like a jerk in pictures if you have a whole bunch of people, you know, so we, we kept it oh my small, God, yeah. easy to maintain, easy to keep people outside and separate. And uh, it all worked out great and a lot of great vegan food. Well, I love the idea of doing it at the wildlife center. I mean, so many people are like, oh, let's have a birthday at the zoo. And um, I got an email from someone the other week who went camping at a zoo for a birthday. What? And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, and how was the cake? Yeah, so uh, shout out to Mo Nuts. It's a, a vegan, gluten-free protein donut shop here in Winnipeg. And now they're starting to make giant Mo Nuts. So I got to get two giant Mo Nuts to cover all the parties. And they were absolutely delicious and lovely, cruelty-free goodness. So all the good vegan food and Beyond Burgers. Lots of Beyond Burgers. And yeah, Ethical Animal Experiences. Last year we tried to do it at a sanctuary, but the weather didn't work. Uh, and this year I was trying to think of something a little different. And the Wildlife Rehab Centers are... I think a perfect thing to do to see a bunch of different kinds of animals and uh, make a donation as part of your, your birthday event. Oh, such a nice idea. Well, yeah. happy birthday, Clover. I can't Yay. believe she's four. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, in other news, we are only a couple of weeks away. Um, oh, my God. By the time this podcast is out, it's going to be only a week from yeah. our animal law conference Woo! coming up soon. Yay. And... I'm really excited about so many things happening at the Canadian Animal Law Conference this year. First of all, it's all online, so it's totally accessible to everybody across the country. If you can't make it on the dates for the live event, which runs September 12th and 13th, um, and September 11th is a student day, then uh, you can still sign up and have access to all the sessions for 60 days after the event, which is pretty cool and wouldn't be possible with an in-person event. So the pandemic does have some advantages. Oh, wow. Um, 60 days. And, that's great. And one thing I'm also very excited about is the student day on September 11th designed for all of our students and I know lots of students listen to this podcast so if you're an animal law student and you want to come to the conference and you haven't registered yet check it out we've got a special price for students and the Friday September 11th is devoted entirely to student programming so there's going to be a career panel there's going to be a student scholarship panel an AGM and I think probably the most exciting part <laughs> well for us anyway 
is that Peter Sankoff and Jessica and I will be doing a live recording with all three hosts of Paw and Order. Oh, I can't wait to get on here with Peter. Can't wait. I know. I think that we're going to have to gang up on him. Absolutely. Well, I thought that was the whole point. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely the whole point. If any students want to assist us with a ganging up, drop me a note. We'd love your help. (laughs) Yes, please. So that should be super fun. And then the conference itself has amazing content. Just like I'm blown away by the speakers. We've got a really great egg gig panel and another talk about egg gigs. You're going to hear about all the updates on that. Um, animals used in science, um, a panel called All My Relations, which is about UNDRIP, animal rights and indigenous worldviews. Mm-hmm. Super cool. We've got a panel of politicians. We've got uh, Nahani Fontaine from Manitoba, who's uh, NDP MLA. We've got Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, everybody's favorite liberal MP. And uh, Marty McKendry, who works in the Senate, and they're going to talk about how politicians can make a difference for animals. We've got a panel about um, persons or things, habeas corpus, personhood litigation for animals. Uh, There's some Tiger King content, lots of content about municipal law, how to make changes there. It's just so cool. Seems like they're really covering a lot of bases this year. I mean, attending last year was super fun. Uh, not being able to be all together is a bit of a bummer, but it sounds like even the panels have really upped our game. Like this is a lot of different kinds of content covering so many different topics. I'm really excited. Yeah, I think we probably have about twice as many panels as we did last year. And of course, the reason for that is, or one of the reasons, uh, there's two reasons. A, we got so many great applicants who wanted to speak and share their wisdom. And B, because of the online format, we weren't really limited by room size and space considerations. So it just makes it so much more interesting and exciting. Yes, I cannot wait. Yeah, and uh, I just wanted to uh, remind everybody, we spoke about this on the last podcast, but our, our Platinum Conference sponsor is the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights Law and Policy, which is a U.S.-based national independent think tank. Uh, they're pursuing a paradigm shift in human responsibility towards animals and their value by advancing animal law, policy, and related interdisciplinary studies. And they are sponsoring a special scholars track of presentations at uh, the conference, which are designed to be a bit longer, go more in-depth on a topic. And there's some really interesting topics there from enforcement to egg to racism in animal law. There's all kinds of uh, content there. But what I wanted to remind people is that the Brooks Institute also sends out a weekly Animal Law Digest, which is a premier online publication offering super in-depth and really up-to-date coverage about the most important animal law policy issues today. It's uh, published as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program. So it's a super great resource, and the best part is that it's free, so you can sign up for it if you'd like to stay in touch with all the happenings. It focuses on U.S. law just, but there's also Canadian stuff in there, so it's of interest, I think, to everybody. Oh, good. Yeah, we got to get the Canadian law up in there. Yeah, so visit uh, thebrooksinstitute.org to sign up, and we will also post a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Super! All right. So um, I also would love to remind everybody that if you listen to this podcast and you enjoy it as much as we enjoy putting it on, you can add to our over 150 five-star reviews. We got a new one, Jess, from Larry TKP the other week. And here's what Larry has to say. He says, great podcast to learn about animal rights issues and laws in Canada. Thank you for doing what you do. Heroes and Zeros is always a fun part of the program. LOL. Larry, thank you, Larry. 
Thanks, Larry. Peter is feeling very vindicated right now, I'm sure. Oh, you just wait. You just wait till the end of the podcast. I have a serious, serious Heroes and Zeros voice coming out just for Peter. Oh, he's going to be happy. (laughs) And your final reminder that if you love this podcast, you can also support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon's a platform where you can support content that you like uh, participating in or listening to. And uh, if you sign up for a monthly donation, we will put you in the running for a regular prize, uh, all kinds of perks, and of course, our love and gratitude. And I want to thank our new patron, Julie. Yay, Julie. Thanks for being awesome. Thanks, Julie. All right, on to the news. So today's episode, uh, we don't have like a, I guess we have a main topic because we've got lots of egg gag news to update people on, but really we're just going to go through a whole bunch of articles because there's just been so much happening, Jess. Yeah, there's been so much, uh, so much talk about agriculture and even other animals too. There's, uh, and of course, always updates regarding uh, the passing of Regan Russell. So yeah, let's get into it. All right. Well, first article we're going to talk about is from the Western Producer, which is a farm publication. And it's, uh, it had, its headline reads, public support for egg has its limits, which is super interesting. And I believe that you were mentioned in this story, Jess. Yes, thank you for the shout out. It really kind of made me feel, you know, they're talking about um, a poll done um, about Canadians and their support for different sectors, government uh, finance support of different sectors of agriculture, you know, vegetables and fruit, meat. Uh, and it seems like in the section where they mentioned me, they, they're kind of giving me some of the credit for why young, <laughs> younger Canadians uh, are showing up less on this poll as uh, in support of government funding of animal agriculture. And I'm, just, I'm here for it. I'm saying I'll take it. Thanks very much for that. Oh, take all the credit, girl. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, so it's cool. They're talking about uh, support for meat production versus fruit and vegetable and, and grain production. And um, yeah, support for dairy and poultry is significantly lower than supporting other um, types of farm commodities, which is super interesting. And as you mentioned, they also discussed that young people are uh, even less supportive of funding these industries. And then they say that social media has a powerful hold on young Canadians. For example, the Globe and Mail newspaper routinely publishes the opinions of Jessica Scott Reed, an animal rights activist and vocal opponent of meat production. Woo, woo, that's me. Yeah, listen to me, young people. I think they actually make a differentiation between social media and the fact that the Globe and Mail is a more traditional platform and that, that we still have some influence on younger people through this traditional platform. So shout out to the Globe and Mail for always allowing me to not always but often allowing me to say what I need to say on these topics and shout out to the young people who apparently read the Globe and Mail (laughs) yeah go guys so you know pretty cool to see that I think that we're all feeling this perceptible shift and people's support for these industries as more people learn about the truth of what goes into meat and dairy and egg production but great to see this reflected in actual hard data yeah, and I think people too thinking about their tax dollars, right? If it's government funded, and people are thinking, well, this is this is where my money is going. Do I really want to be paying for dairy production? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad to see people are thinking about it. Yeah, totally. And no doubt, you know, shifts in federal policy, like de-emphasizing meat in the in the food guide and focusing on plant protein, removing the dairy category. You've got to think that that plays a role, too. Oh, for sure. That's very powerful stuff. I think so much. So many conversations have happened and cultural shifts are at least starting ever since that point. That's a good point. Yeah. 
All right. So the next story we're going to talk about is in the Hamilton Spectator, and it's about uh, some heated protests and counter protests going on in the Niagara region over the past few weeks. Yeah, the At War for Animals group, they've really been um, they've been doing such such big work for the, for such a long time against the the carriage horse industry and then they were met with some counter protesters that were holding some really awful signs regarding uh, Regan Russell and now they are offering an apology for it. Uh, we talked about it I think on our last episode that one of the particularly bad signs um, and now they're offering an apology and so now this article covers what Regan Russell's family said uh, as a reply. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the sign from the counter-protesters said that Regan had committed suicide after she was struck and killed by a transport truck outside Fearman's Park Slaughterhouse. And her family is, at this point, um, just not having this anymore. And I, I, I really admire her family for how much they've stuck up for her legacy following her unfortunate and untimely and just heartbreaking death. Yeah. Uh, but they said that uh, apologizing for the words on a single placard shows that they're ignoring evidence. This wasn't just about a single sign. There were tons of signs hurling insults and mockery at protesters. Um, so I think that's really unfortunate. And, um, I, you know, it just it just blows my mind that someone would go to an event like that and hold up a sign insulting a person who died, who gave her life standing up for what she believed in. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of animosity between these two groups which is unfortunate because I feel like there was a time you know I don't necessarily know who this other side of counter protesters are I guess we could assume they're you know pro truckers and pro ag folks and I mean I feel like for a long time these groups existed for a long time these uh, the safe movement has existed for a long time safely uh, and has been able to sort of work with some of these drivers in a safe way. And now things have just become so, so heated. Uh, it's become so much more about hurling insults uh, and and less about what are we going to do to help these animals. Uh, and it's really unfortunate. And for Regan's family to be caught up in this way, it's it's just really adding so much insult to injury, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I can't imagine how painful that must be to have lost her just, you know, just over two months ago and still be dealing with people who are saying such hurtful, mean things. I mean, most people who lose someone just never have to deal with at least that side of it. But yeah, they're just they're just pillars of strength. Um, So, you know, another thing to point out, which is really troubling, is that a lot of the signs from counter protesters, um, pro animal use counter protesters have uh, slurs, racialized slurs, um, slurs discriminating against uh, queer people. There, there's some troubling content on those signs overall, and mm-hmm. I really think they just need to tone it down. And uh, I agree with you. It's been really unfortunate to see the rhetoric be amped up to this degree. And you've got to lay some of the blame, obviously, at the feet of industry, but at government, too, for creating this situation and introducing egg-egg laws, which have led to this really, really tense standoff now. Yeah, like we've said, this emboldening of people on the other side that seem to feel that the government is on their side, and so they've sort of taken it upon themselves to to, to rev things up so much. Yeah, yeah, not a good situation, and I, I fear that it's only going to deteriorate further. Yeah, I hope I hope the focus can get back on to the animals and back onto Regan, uh, and that these counter protests will be done. I hope so too. I hope so too. Okay, well, next story 
It's about Canada Goose, which uh, is everybody's most hated jacket company because they kill tons of coyotes and ducks for their feathers as well. So piece from Press Progress, Jess, which I read and I, I got to say I wasn't all that surprised. Uh, the headline reads, Culture of Fear. Canada Goose factory workers fear losing their jobs or raising concerns about working conditions. Yeah, I mean, none of this is shocking to me. If you read through this story, it talks about... Um, some of the working conditions that people were having issues with uh, in the factory in Winnipeg while they're making PPE, the poor workers aren't uh, being able to benefit from any safety measures themselves. There's issues with toilets not working, people having to use porta potties all during a pandemic. But of course, Camille, none of this really is surprising when you're talking about a business that is built on the exploitation and killing of animals. Uh, it's, it's very akin to a slaughterhouse. And here we have uh, workers being exploited and treating inhumanely. Uh, it's it's very, very much the same, isn't it, as, as, the, as agriculture, animal agriculture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the victims of these industries are not just the animals. In many cases, they're the workers as well. And in this case, you mentioned the porter potties. This sounds just horrific. Uh, there were only a few, por- so I think there were f- two porta potties or four porta potties, not very many porta potties for 500 or so workers because the washrooms inside the factory broke. And they were apparently in terrible condition. They only got cleaned every four days, according to some people. And um, one worker said that their spouse, her spouse would pick her up on breaks and drive her home so she could use a more hygienic washroom. Another kept a container in their car trunk and workers were eating and drinking less during the work days to avoid having to go to the porta potties because they were that bad. Like this is this is serious. Yeah, super, super exploitative, super inhumane. Uh, nothing good is happening at Canada Goose. Yeah, not a good situation at all. And uh, I'm really glad to see this getting some um, coverage. Yeah, what is this press progress, Camille? Do you know much about it as a publication? This, it's, a, such a, I, it's a well done piece. Yeah, it's a great piece. Press Progress is, uh, I believe it's a publication of the Broadbent Institute, which is loosely affiliated with the NDP. They're sort of like a think tank. And, uh, you know, I think the idea is that they want to do journalism on progressive topics with a progressive bent to it, which... Um, I suppose the focus on workers' rights from that perspective is is not surprising and and very welcome. Oh well, this is this is a new publication to me. Uh, shout out to Press Progress. Let's chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good job, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I just you know one last comment on this is that I hope that stories like this will make. Uh, certain people in the leadership of our country in the highest offices rethink their allegiance with Canada Goose and yes. their constant promoting of this absolutely cruel company. Hint, hint, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in other news, we've got uh, some news about beluga whales. So Jess, I think you've been following the story, but everybody knows Canada has now banned uh the keeping of whales and dolphins, although there's an exemption for belugas and dolphins and other whales who are already existing in tanks in Canada, but you can't breed them and you can't uh, make them perform for entertainment. And you also can't export them out of the country unless it's in the best interests of those whales and dolphins or it's for research. So very interestingly, Marineland has been trying to export five of its belugas to uh, Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut in the States. And we've talked about this before, 
um, animal justice was involved in the States. I mean, my, our colleague Caitlin Mitchell went and testified before the uh, U.S. government saying that those permits should not be issued for the import of the belugas into the States. We're talking at this point about U.S. permits that the U.S. has to issue. The Canadian permits are a separate situation. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, the uh, U.S. authorities did issue permits for the import of those five belugas, but they issued pretty strong conditions attached to those permits. So the belugas cannot be bred. And there are, there's a non-performance condition as well that mirrors Canadian legislation. So it's super interesting to me because I think this is a really strong reflection of the blackfish effect and mm. the idea that countries around the world are banning whale captivity because it's a wrong thing to do. And uh, clearly, U.S. officials are taking that idea seriously as well, or they wouldn't have put these conditions in the permit. So to me, that really speaks to the fact that the writing is on the wall for this industry. And, uh, you know, the, the whole practice of keeping whales in tanks, it's going belly up. Yeah, it definitely looks like a good sign, Camille. I, uh, I hope that this progresses. Yeah, I hope so, too. Now, on the flip side of this coin, Jess, of course, if those whales are to be shipped to the United States, uh, Canada is going to have to issue the, the, the export permits as well. Mm. So we've all kind of been holding our breath and waiting to see what the Canadian government is going to do, because they don't really have any policy guidance right now on what export permits might look like, what the conditions might be, what factors they might be considering. But the government put out a news release recently saying that they're starting public consultations on what those issues should look like and how those policies should be enacted. So there's an opportunity now for everyone to get involved. And I encourage you guys to check out the show notes so you can have your say. But I, I do want to point out the government's news release uh, is fantastic. I don't know if you read it, Jess, but they make it very clear that they are opposed to whales and dolphins in captivity because they think it's wrong. Yeah, now, I know we already know this because they passed a line, uh, a law, but I just love seeing them underscore this. I had to actually recheck who was publishing the article because it, the language was so strongly positive for our side in this. I, I couldn't even believe where it was coming from. Hmm. I know it's pretty great. It's pretty great to see the, the liberals adopt to this language and, uh, you know, really great that so many high up people in that government have been so supportive of whales and dolphins. So um, I hope that they will continue to be during the consultation process. So I encourage everyone to go have their say. Yes. And just if you need some motivation, last month, the first official beluga whale uh, sanctuary opened up off the coast of Iceland. So uh, beluga whales, uh, little white and little gray, are the first beluga whales now living in an actual sea sanctuary, uh, showing what the what this can look like uh, if things go the right way. So if you need some motivation, go check it out. There's lots of great footage about little white and little gray. Oh, that video of them was adorable. They yes. were so happy. Yes, it's so great. I hope that the one uh, off the coast of Canada uh, starts moving forward fast. Yeah, yeah, we desperately need it with 50 some belugas still at Marine Land. Yes, Whale Sanctuary Project, I think it's called, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Awesome group of people. And the government in Nova Scotia, as well as the feds, from my understanding, they've been very supportive of this to their credit, which I think is uh, really showing a lot of foresight on their part, because this is the future. Yeah, this is all really good, good signs. Yeah. All right. Well, this next story just drives me a little bananas. <laughs> Did you see the story about the Toronto police budget? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I've written for the star in the past about budgeting issues about, you know, horse racing and other kinds of crap. This one really bothers me. Um, I wrote a piece for sentient media, uh, I think about two months ago, talking about 
police horses, mounted police, and how problematic it is in so many ways. The article I wrote focused a lot on Black Lives Matter protesters and and how uh, mounted police acted as a as a continuing symbol of oppression against both protesters and animals. Yeah, that's right. So the Toronto police budget, of course, now that everyone's calling for the defunding of police, they're under a lot of pressure to be more transparent. And apparently, this is the first time we've seen some of the public details of their operating budget. Uh, they're spending five and a half million on a 40 person mounted unit this year, um, which apparently, according to the Star's uh, article here, is nearly as much as all of the new spending that council approved for community based initiatives to tackle gun violence this year so yeah it's just it's it's so outdated to be riding horses around the city like there's a reason that so many people are opposed to carriage rides in the city involving horses hauling carriages and that's because horses don't belong on hot pavement in an unnatural city environment that's just not the place for them yet for some reason the police think it's okay to ride around on horses as if it's like 150 years ago it is it's so dated and and the more we're seeing them being used, I mean, during Black Lives Matter protesting, there was a number of really disturbing videos of horses being used uh, in not just exploitative ways, but harmful ways. You know, horses being harmed, being hurt um, as if they're just a vehicle. It's really disturbing to see it. In my piece for Sentient Media, I interviewed uh, an activist named Christopher Eubanks, also known as Soul Eubanks, uh, and he said, Police, people see police on horseback being used to control protesters fighting for the equality of black people as another reminder of the violent origins of this country. Using horses' bodies as weapons to intimidate protesters is not only animal abuse, but it's also a disturbing display of dominance to bully protesters. Yeah, clearly not. And that's that's really well said. I love I love the way he put that. Uh, I just don't understand, Jess, why they can't get some bicycles, right? Like, No kidding. Why bike- horses? <laughs> I know, like less maintenance. You don't have to feed bicycles. Uh, they're not going to get hit by a car and die. Um, you know, if they don't think that the bicycles are high enough, they could get some of those like really tall bikes. That would be hilarious, by the way. Yeah, that would be hilarious. Really tall bikes. <laughs> but I, I would genuinely, genuinely love to. And in my research, I really could not find anything about what makes a horse a beneficial tool we should be even calling them tools, but in this situation for crowd control, uh, you know, patrolling protesters, whatever, why? I mean, I can understand why, why it started off as horses because there were no, no cars, but what, how, how has this continued on, right? Why are they still a thing? What makes them more beneficial than a big tall bicycle? Yeah, no, it, to me, it just feels like one of those legacy things. Like, oh, well, we've been doing this, and uh, the police used to be the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. Right. Well, they still are called that, anyway. Not the Toronto Police, but it just feels like they've been doing it forever, so they want to keep doing it. And they probably think it's cool to be on horses. They're like, oh, yeah, this is different. But enough is enough, guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oi. All right, well, speaking of horses, we have another um, a really sad horse story. Yeah, this is a um, this is a really sad one. So there's a, this really powerful group, the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition, that works a lot um, on the fight to end the live export of horses from Canada to Japan, where they are slaughtered and eaten. Um, and they were able to get a Freedom of Information um, Act information. What was I think from May that showed uh, on a transport from Winnipeg Airport, which is a common 
uh, starting point. Well, not starting point, actually. They often come from feedlots in Alberta, so they have to travel by ground all the way to Winnipeg. And then they fly from Winnipeg almost 30 hours to get to Japan. Uh, and this group, oh. yeah, it's really horrific. And this group um, was able to get some information about horses arriving downed or, and in fact, one arrived dead uh, this last May. And they have actually tried to sue, what was it? They went to court because there was two violations. One was that they, they witnessed and photographed horses being crammed, multiple horses in a crate. You're supposed to have only one. If a horse is bigger than a pony size, there's supposed to be one per crate. I've seen the photographs of more than one horse in a crate and clearance of their head and there, there's no clearance for their head. So it's no wonder after who knows how long of ground travel, up to, I think it was 28 hours to get to Japan, that of course you're going to find some of them dead or downed. Um, it's an absolutely horrific industry that really needs much more attention. I'm working on a piece for Sentient Media about it right now, uh, trying to expose this. Oh, I'm glad you're writing about it more. And I know you've written it about it in the past too, but it's just so inexcusable in this day and age that we're shipping horses on super long flights to Japan. I mean, 28 hours. So what was interesting to me about this release package they got with the documents from the government is that it, it appears that uh, the transporters definitely violated Canada's animal transport laws because they are not supposed to transport horses for more than 28 hours. And mm -hmm. this trip took over 28 hours. And the CFA's response is like, oh, yeah, you know, I guess we'll talk about talk with them about like how they can get the trip time down lower, which to me seems pretty unacceptable that that's like their compliance response. Right. It's just like, oh yeah, I guess we'll talk to them about it. And then the other thing that's really notable about that, and you mentioned this, but like the 28 hours, that's just from when you load them and then fly them. Um, that doesn't include all of the transport up to the point of loading them into the airplane. So that means they could have been shipped for like a further period um, for, you know, quite some time, which is also troubling. And just, you know, imagine having to stay on your feet and not having any food or water or rest for 28 hours. Well, I mean, we've all been on long haul flights or many of us have. Uh, I mean, I, seven hours is about my max. I can't imagine being crammed in a crate for 28 hours. And then another concern of this group and, and other advocates is what happens when they get there this is japan i mean we can't we can't guarantee that their welfare that their humane treatment that their humane slaughter is happening you know to canadian standards no one knows what's happening to these horses once they get there these canadian bred horses so there's a lot to be concerned about they've um they've issued an appeal uh because their initial um endeavor was denied right yeah, that's right. They've been they've been suing. So they were in federal court originally and the judge turned them down and the judge said that, um, well, the cause of action was that they were concerned the CFA was not enforcing the rules. So mm -hmm. this this uh, provision that said that the horses couldn't be mixed in crates together and the provision that said that they couldn't touch the top of the crates, mm -hmm. uh, the CFA was letting shipments go and certifying that they met the rules when they really didn't, which is just completely contrary to the rule of law. But the judge didn't see it that way, and uh, the, the group is now appealing, which I really hope is going to be successful because this is an important issue. Um, yeah, they, they recently changed the transport laws and eliminated those two provisions. So this case is like a little bit historical in the sense because it's dealing with situations that uh, were in place before they changed the transport laws to comply with what they were already doing, which was not following the rules. So the CFIA just comes out looking so bad from this, no matter what way you cut it. 
Yeah, I think um, people just really need to realize more that this is happening. This is sort of an out of sight, out of mind. They do these um, loading up at the airport and transports usually around four or five in the morning uh, where, where they expect people aren't going to see. Um, the other thing is people don't really realize that Canada is breeding horses for food and not even food in our own country. So that's something I'm going to be doing a lot more investigation through Sentient Media is um, is looking more into the fact that we are breeding horses for food in Canada. I don't think a lot of people realize that. No, I don't think so either. And, and horses are not really eaten for food in Canada, apart from a couple places in Quebec, but it's just not a common thing here. And I think when people learn about that, they are not really that happy. Well, and also like environmentally, why are we producing more food that isn't even for our own country? You know, like we don't we don't really don't need to be adding to our carbon footprint here, do we? Oh, seriously, let's let's, you know, grow more plants instead of feeding them to animals and then slaughtering them. Jeez, jeez, jeez. Yeah, geez Louise. All right, and one final piece before we get into a gig discussions, Jess. Uh, interesting news out of Vancouver. The Vancouver Aquarium announced that it's closing its doors to the public as of September 7th. And the reason for this is they say they're going to reinvent themselves. They are not in a good situation right now. They think they need a new model. And I don't know, Jess, what that new model is going to look like, but I'm just going to say I did read, write a piece in the Globe and Mail in April calling for them to transition to, quote, reinvent themselves See, by transitioning you me, to you a sanctuary. And me, you and me in the Globe, we're making it all happen. I know, I know. It's it's an influential publication. Oh gosh, I can't yeah, imagine so I, what they're going to look like. Like what what could they possibly do? I hope they make the right call. I hope that the ethics are are on the right side when they reopen. They really have an opportunity here. I hope they don't mess it up. I think so too. I mean, they do some rescue and rehab and sanctuary work already, but that that whole track record is just marred by the fact that they've got 70,000 animals on display for money, essentially. And I don't think that's compatible with what Canadians want. So, you know, I did an interview about this on CKNW, the station out there, the radio station out there. And the host was asking like, well, you know, is it really, is this really a sign of the decline of the aquarium industry? Or is it just a sign that maybe people um, are not going because of COVID? And like, yeah, I think that's true. Obviously, they lost a ton of money because of COVID, but I don't think that's the full picture because when you look at polls now, support has never been lower for zoos and aquariums. Right. Like most people say they're opposed to them. Yep. And we know sort of like anecdotally that places like Marineland have had empty parking lots for years. And I just, you know, you, you got to think that this is having an effect on them. And I hope they do see the writing on the wall. Yeah, I hope they do really take this opportunity. I hope they, they make it worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Animal Stone is a Toronto-based, family-owned, women-run business specializing in handmade, solid sterling silver and solid 14-karat gold animal charms. Animal Stone was founded on the principle that humans, animals, and nature must exist harmoniously together to conserve our shared place on planet Earth. Animal Stone believes the joy that animals bring to our lives is an essential component to our ecological systems, so that together we must celebrate and respect their majesty. With the help of in-house designer and goldsmith Delaine Cooper, over 40 3D animals have been brought to life, complete with a birth story, name, and personality reflective of the animal as it is in the wild. Animal Stone is a team of animal lovers and eco-warriors who celebrate the beauty of the natural world, while encapsulating this love for wildlife within the miniature bodies that are their Animal Stone charms. Animal Stone's mantra is connecting animals to people, and they have partnered nine of their animal charms up with local and global wildlife organizations to make a difference through rescue, conservation, education, habitat protection, and research. 
Check out animalstone.com to learn more and use code PAUSE10 for 10% off your order today. Okay, so let's move into our main topic for today, which is going to be kind of an update for you guys about the egg gag situation. Uh, we've had some news in the last uh, few days about uh, Ontario egg gag, about Manitoba egg gag, and some issues happening in those provinces. So where to start? I guess I guess maybe we should start with the tickets. Yeah, that was a really odd story. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping you'll shed some more clear light on it because I found it so strange that out of nowhere, um, these protesters outside of Fearman's slaughterhouse who've you know been there for a long time suddenly started getting ticketing. What was it for? For jaywalking? Or what was it? Yeah, basically, it was like for entering into an intersection when there was a red light. So, the, you know, the situation outside the slaughterhouse is that they will approach trucks that are kind of like turning the corner to go into the slaughterhouse. And they often will stop them for two minutes. But if the trucks don't stop for them, they often have to stop at the red light before they turn right into the slaughterhouse. So uh, historically, they could just sort of access those trucks and see the animals from the sidewalk. They could stand on public property on the sidewalk in a permissible place right. and take videos, give water. Yeah, for years but, this has been this has been going on. Oh, yeah, forever. It's just it's just the way things have always gone. So, uh what we've seen since Regan's death and actually the, the driver who ran over Regan was doing this right before um he hit her is instead of going in the right turning lane to make a right turn, they are driving in the center lane of traffic. So one lane over from the sidewalk. And they do this. They stop at the light that's there. And then there's this whole other lane between the sidewalk mm -hmm. and the truck. Mm -hmm. And they do that purposely, it seems, to try to prevent activists from interacting or seeing the animals. So super dangerous situation because it forces them to walk into the road if they want to bear witness and do their thing at the vigil. And um, yeah, so just the police have just started handing out tickets for that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, uh, apparently a bunch were given out a couple of weeks ago. Uh What's troubling to me about this is it's actually an offense under the Highway Traffic Act to, to make a right turn from the central lane. Right, right. So, so why? Why are they not being why ticketed? It, that's the question. Oh, that's wow. the question. But unfortunately, it just fits with the pattern at the slaughterhouse at Fearman's Pork in Burlington. Like the slaughterhouse constantly violates the rules, whether it's traffic rules, running people over, animal welfare rules during transport. And just it's like nothing ever happens to them. Right. And now, today, what are we seeing? Now we're seeing, I've been trying to keep up on Facebook, watching, I think, Jenny and Anita, um, they're on site now, the first day where stopping trucks is now illegal, right? That's right. So September 2nd, that's the date we're recording this. And the government announced two days ago, so August 31st, that they were uh, bringing one of the provisions of Bill 156, the AGA law, into force early. And that was the provision that outlaws stopping trucks or interfering with trucks in any way. So that is now law as of today. So anyone who stops a truck can be hit with a fine. And do you remember how much those fines are? Because it's ridiculous. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Remind us. 15,000, oh up to 15,000 for a first offense or 25,000 for a second offense. And that's it's just for shocking. an individual, right? Like the, the ones, there's even greater ones if they're, if you're part of an organization that's inciting people to do this. Well, that's in Alberta. They have greater ones. In Ontario, it, it seems to be the same. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know. 
so, both ways are bad. So the last I was looking on Facebook following the protesters, because they're still there. The, they're still holding vigil there. Um, I didn't see anyone getting ticketed yet, but I did see them having to have conversations with police. So by the time this recording comes out, I'm sure things will have progressed. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I know this is not going to deter people from holding vigils because the stakes are too high. Like, we're literally talking about animals who are suffering and dying in those trucks, and millions of them arrive dead at slaughter every year. And I know that the community is just not going to turn their back on that. So I guess it will just be an adjustment. People are going to have to figure out a new way of doing vigils, and I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. It's a very inventive group, and I I just, I'm so grateful for them. I hope they don't stop, but I, you know, I want them to be able to do it safely. But it's thanks to these activists, the Save Movement activists in particular, that I've been able to publish a lot of the things that I've been able to publish, uh, that a lot of the public has become aware of issues with animal transport in particular, the state at which these animals arrive at slaughterhouses after extremely long travel times in the winter, in the heat of the summer. Um, It's only thanks to them being there, to them documenting, live streaming, taking photographs, um, that that the public has been made aware of these things at all, and and that people like me are able to to talk about it even further in the media. So I'm just so grateful for them. And they're doing a public service that uh, is not only for the animals, but for the public as well. Yeah. And what you've just described, the importance of that type of service that they're doing, that's exactly why I think this bill is unconstitutional. It's because that type of expression, which is a protected charter right, is so important to people who uh, people who care about animals, people who eat meat, who deserve to know what they're purchasing and might make different decisions if they had information. So, you know, it's only a matter of time before this bill comes completely into effect and it gets challenged in court. So on that note, interestingly, On that note, in addition to bringing that one provision into effect as of today about trucks, Ontario has now released some more information about the regulations they're drafting to accompany the egg gag law. So you'll recall, Jess, and probably our listeners will too, that the egg gag law passed in June, June 17th, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's not entirely in effect yet because the government's got to make these regulations. And the regulations are basically going to set out the scope of just how unconstitutional this bill is going to be. Mm -hmm. So we've been waiting to see what's coming out. They've released sort of a draft discussion paper. I will post it in the show notes so everyone can take a peek. But nothing in there alleviates any of my concerns. They're they're saying that, uh, you know, the false pretenses provisions, so preventing somebody from getting access to a facility through false pretenses, Mm -hmm. that's what would shut down undercover investigations. And nothing about that has alleviated any of my concerns. They're still intending, it seems to me, to outlaw investigations. Unless, interestingly enough, the person is a journalist under a bunch of different conditions. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. But I mean, not everybody is a journalist. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of people working undercover doing these things uh, that aren't journalists. So, I mean, that alleviates yeah. me a little bit, but not completely. Well, and then they impose all these like conditions on the journalism as well. And they, they decide who is a journalist, which is pretty troubling. Cause I, right. I, think, I don't really think that's standard in, in Canadian law to decide who gets to be called a journalist. Right. Um, it's not, it's not like a, you know, a lawyer where like there's a professional regulator and they say you're a lawyer or you're not like journalism is a much different profession where many people are engaged in it and maybe they don't do it full time. Maybe they do other things like deciding who gets to say they're a journalist to me is pretty troubling. Yeah. I mean, and especially this day and age with social media, there's a lot of people who are creating content, important content that they may not be working for a news agency. I mean, I don't work for a news agency. I work for no one. That's kind of why this all works. I could imagine that if I were to go in, it could be a fight for even someone like me, unless I was 
going under a contract of, of a publication. I don't work for anyone in particular. Am I a journalist? Yeah, good question. Well, we'll have to see, but I'm still very troubled by these regs, mm -hmm. well, what they're saying at this point. And we are going to post some uh, more detailed analysis so anyone that does want to comment to the government. So the reason these this draft is out now is because they're soliciting feedback for 45 days before they make the final regulations. And um, you all have a, an opportunity to comment if you're an Ontario resident. So I urge everybody to do that. And we'll definitely be posting more information soon. So you've got all the knowledge that you need at your fingertips. And isn't that the same situation that's now happening somewhat in Manitoba that we are now allowing people to have comment? It is, yeah. So we've we've talked about this before. Um, we've all been monitoring Manitoba because there's some fear that they want to bring in a gig legislation based on some comments they've made. And it appears that those fears are founded. So they released a survey recently on something called engagemanitoba.ca engagemb.ca in particular. And it's about, uh, the, the title says it's about the development of rural crime, biosecurity, and metal theft legislation. <laughs> okay, <that>? whatever. Okay. <laughs> I guess maybe that's an issue in rural Manitoba. That's so Manitoba. <laughs> yeah, so based on the questions that they're consulting Manitobans on, we're pretty troubled by this. They're asking about amendments to existing laws to designate a livestock facility or vehicle that contains animals as, quote, biosecurity areas or, quote, animal protection areas. Oh, this Sounds animal protection. Like exactly. This animal protection area thing is such a thorn in our side, isn't it? Oh, it's just it's, it's just such an Orwellian use of language. It oh, drives me nuts. Yeah. It's like more like an animal cruelty area. Exactly. <laughs> But they're consulting about this. They want to know whether people support designating these areas as biosecurity or animal protection areas. Um, they want to know if they support those designated areas uh, being entered only with the consent of the owner or operator of a vehicle um, or the farm, vehicle or farm or slaughterhouse, I guess. Uh -huh. um, so. And same thing with interfering with animals in transport. So it sounds to me a lot like they're planning to go down the very troubling uh, Ontario road. Yeah, it sounds sounds so similar. Sounds nearly identical, doesn't it? So we need people. Yeah. We need people to go and take this survey. We do. We do. So we'll post a link again in the show notes so you can do that. Um, I I took the survey just to see what was in it. It doesn't require a postal code, so I imagine people from elsewhere would take it, but I'm sure it would have a lot more weight with somebody who puts in their postal code so the government can see it's a Manitoban. So uh, if you're okay. in Manitoba, we especially need you to yes. take it. Yes, shout out Winnipeg folks, all my Winnipeg peoples. Let's get on this. Yeah, spread the word, people. All right. Well, I think that's the end of our main segment. Um, you know, just to wrap it up, I'll say that we're going to keep our eyes on all this egg gig news. It's heating up again. And I'm sure now that uh, we're kind of getting into the fall and legislatures are coming back, that we might start to see even more of this. So we are going to be making sure that you have all the latest egg gig news and uh, we'll do everything we can to fight those bills. Yes. Thanks to Animal Justice for being on top of it. Well, and thanks to you for continually writing about it because uh God, you know non-stop non without stop. public discussion yes <laughs> heroes and zeros it's time for everybody's favorite segment heroes and zeros heroes and zeros there you go peter i think that was pretty good that was really enthusiastic thank you thank you peter appreciates enthusiasm good 
All right, who's our hero? Okay, so we are given the hero to the British Veterinary Association uh, because they are launching a battle to stop the boiling of lobsters alive, which we've seen um, already happen in Switzerland. And apparently New Zealand, too. I actually oh, right. didn't realize yeah, that that's until right. recently. Yeah, there was a... Yeah. yeah, that's right. I just saw an article about that the other day. So, so it seems like the UK is trying to get on with this as well because the science is becoming more and more clear, if you need science, that uh, throwing a live lobster into boiling water might just cause them pain. Wow, who would have thought? I mean, how could anyone have predicted that boiling someone alive might hurt? Yeah, I, I don't know why we need so much science. I went, to, uh, I was having to Google it because yesterday I posted on my Instagram an amazing meal of lobster mushrooms that were foraged in Manitoba and I cooked. And of course, on Twitter, you're going to get into arguments about this, aren't you? About whether or not <laughs> lobsters are sentient. And so I went on a Google search of articles and holy cow, in the last two years, the amount of articles written about whether or not lobsters feel pain is unbelievable. Like, they avoid heat. That's all I need to know. Yeah. Yeah, I have looked into the science of this somewhat extensively because a couple of years ago, we filed an animal cruelty complaint about not boiling lobsters, but about lobster dismemberment, which is the way that this Toronto restaurant called LBS or Pounds, I guess, was killing lobsters. Oh, right. I remember and that. Yeah. And like, it's just so clear to me. They they have pain receptors. They avoid noxious stimuli. They have... Um, well, I'm, I'm, I haven't brushed up on the science, but like they have like basically nerve ganglions throughout their bodies, yeah. which seem to distribute pain. And it's just, you know, it's just so obvious that they, they would. They have all the hallmarks of being able to experience pain. Duh. Yeah. And so there are uh, less cruel ways of killing lobsters. I'm, you know, I, I hesitate to call them humane ways because I don't think there's really any humane way to kill someone yeah. who doesn't want to die. Less cruel, less cruel is the way to go. Yeah, less cruel. So many kitchens already use electronic stunning devices uh, called a crust-to-stun, which I've researched, and they deliver, um, you know, basically an electric impulse, which uh, stuns and or kills lobsters right away so that they don't slowly boil to death over the course of 15 minutes. God almighty. (laughs) Yeah, so interesting about this, like Switzerland, New Zealand, and then maybe the UK might also outlaw boiling lobsters. Well, yeah, and, uh, and that's it just, super interesting because those are like the three best animal law countries that when people say, well, who's doing it right? I mean, no one's doing it right, but these guys are somewhat better. Well, and doesn't it just make sense that a veterinary association would be the one to head this charge, to, to, uh, to charge this battle? Like, it seems to me those would be the people that should be making this fight. And yet... That brings us to our zero, doesn't it? Our zero. The Canadian Veterinary Medical Association is our zero this week. Why, Camille? Why is that? Well, I thought, I wonder if those guys have said anything about this. When I saw the article about the British vets, I thought, that's pretty cool. Maybe the Canadian vets have also spoken up. So I went to their website, couldn't find anything. I searched the word lobster on their website. And the only mention of lobsters, Jess, was uh, a notice from an AGM they had a few years ago in Charlottetown, PEI, talking about going to a lobster restaurant to eat. Oh, my goodness. Way to go, CVMA. Way to go. Yeah. So it would be really nice to see something from the CVMA. Uh, I appreciate maybe they haven't had a lot of time to reflect on this or an opportunity to do so before now. 
But if anyone from the CVMA is listening, I think it would be great if uh, you guys want to give us a call or maybe issue a statement because lobsters um, suffer here too. We've got a huge and thriving lobster industry. Actually, maybe not so thriving because of COVID. I think most people eat lobsters in restaurants because probably a lot of people don't want to kill them themselves. Yes, um, that's true. Totally and true. I'm pretty sure because of the restaurant uh, situation during COVID, lobster fisheries have been way down too. So. Well, we'll, um, we'll have to anyway. wait until seasonal lobster fest comes around, which I don't isn't it kind of this time of the year? I can't remember what time of year, but there's always lobster fest. Maybe that would be a perfect opportunity for the CVMA to come out with a statement. Maybe it would. We'll, we'll be forever hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's our episode for this week, Jess. It was a good time. Good. And I'm looking forward to the next time that we're together because... You and me and Peter are all going to be together with a bunch of students recording live. So it should be a blast. That will be fun. I can't wait. Yeah. All right, everyone. Have a great week. And until next time, signing off. Signing off. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ow!